Indonesia's response to conflict in Ukraine. Millions of subscribers and millions of viewers uh, say that Russia is an ally of Muslims at the end of days. That's again, that's absurd. Uh, but but that's that's the fact that people are keep repeating this narrative. Russia's information operations. But what I do think that has also perhaps done is opened a series of opportunities for pro-invasion, pro-Russian influence operations elsewhere in the world that have much less support and much less kind of wellsprings of sympathy for NATO and for the West. And digital development in Southeast Asia. This coincides with the fact that the Asia-Pacific as a region has been growing in another sense, in the sense of the volume of cyber attacks being carried out in the region. So you have this growing threat, but the capacity has not quite matched up. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. As Russia continues its attacks on Ukraine, ASPI's Dr. David Angle and Raditya Damaputra consider the public response to the conflict in Indonesia and the resonance of Russian propaganda. Well, Raditya, thank you for participating in this podcast. My pleasure, David. Well, some of our uh, audience might know this, but many probably would. You produced a really interesting article recently, about a month ago now, with the Indonesia Melbourne site, in which you posed the question, why do so many Indonesians back Russia's invasion of Ukraine? In the time, you offered several reasons for this, of which the first is a strong undercurrent of anti-American and anti-Western sentiment in Indonesian society. And you suggest that this is now more out in the open, thanks to social media. You also make the point that in this sense, the issue is, quote, more about disdain for the West rather than wholehearted support for Russia's actions. So could you elaborate a little bit on this, please? Yes. So initially, I think, especially in the first two days after the war started, Indonesian public in social media, they did not respond directly to what happened in Ukraine. So mostly we'll talk about other things like gold or maybe even about the Russian arms, things like that. But but after Zelensky criticized NATO and the US for not helping them, then this response from the public start to, instead of uh, focusing on what Ukraine or what Russia did, they, they started to criticize the West started to criticize NATO especially. And then every discussion, you can see that any kind of discussion regarding Russia's invasion, then turned into this this idea that NATO and the US is the one responsible for this situation. So I would say that that's the early indication. So instead of, for example, either supporting directly Russia's invasion, they are, instead of that, they are trying to portray that this is a war between NATO and the US and, of course, Russia, and that Russia is only doing this because NATO encroached into their, their backyard, for example. So so I think that's, that actually said something about how the Indonesian public see this war, not from the Russian perspective per se, but it is from who is the enemy. So the enemy is the US and NATO. They, they do not even talk about uh, Ukraine, even though this NATO is not even involved in this kind of situation directly or militarily uh, in, in this war. One thing you said which really struck me as very interesting, and I think on point, frankly, was the reference to the hypocrisy that people have detected in Indonesia in the Western position. Again, perhaps you could go a bit further yes. on that. 
Yes. So, so again, continuing this line of thought that this is partly anti-Western or anti, in most cases, anti-American. It is also noticeable that you can see whenever people, or at least media, or experts are trying to explain that this is a direct invasion, a military invasion by Russia to Ukraine sovereignty or Ukrainian territory. People always then divert the discussion into what happened in Palestine? Where, where were you when Palestine was attacked by Israel? And it's it's always the same logic. So every time you bring up the facts from the reporters in Ukraine, then they will start saying things that, okay, but the U.S. are supporting Israel and Israel attacked Palestine. So this is the, the same situation, which is, you know, if you follow the logic, it's it's actually quite absurd. But but that's the that's the rationale that that this is actually a hypocrisy from the West. They do not support Palestine, but they support Ukraine. So this is just a, a way to balance the situation. Well, another point you you raised was that many Indonesians seem to prefer strong leaders, and especially those who are out there peddling populist nationalism. And in that context, Putin becomes an admirable figure. How much do you think Russia's poor military performance and the atrocities that in the last month or so have become more and more evident to us all, how do you think that might have changed the way people are thinking about Putin and Russia? And conversely, what effect has the bravery of Zelensky and the Ukrainians had on Indonesian perceptions? Yes, so I don't think it's it's actually noticeable. So if you look, you know, in, in social media, you look at mainstream media's posts, on Russian atrocities in several cities, or Russians, uh, you know, military defeat, for example, in Kiev, people are not really responding to that. People are saying that, okay, for example, the atrocities are fake. This is uh, staged by the West. It's it's the same, again, the same line of logic following the Russian propaganda, what has been said by the Russian ministers, for example. So instead of trying to to look at the situation and try to criticize Putin, for example, because of the humanitarian situation there, people are still, are still very much support Putin. Now, Zelensky is, a, is an interesting point because in, initially they put him in a very, you know, in a binary opposition to Putin. So Putin is a strong leader, while Zelensky is a clown, a former comedian, trying to position him in a lower level leadership compared to Putin. So you would expect that now, because it is a very, you know, because Ukrainians able to defend themselves and try to push back against Russia, again, you would think that people would start to support Zelensky. It is still being portrayed as a clown. He is still being portrayed as a former comedian, as a clown. And if you follow the latest media report that Zelensky, uh, I think, made a comment about Israel and how Ukraine wants to be this kind of... uh, not a European country, but follow Israel's model. Again, it might be contorted by the media, but it is being replied by the people, you know, that the people say, oh, so he is a, a Jewish, a, of course, but he's supporting Israel on the war against Palestine. Again, that puts him in a very, in a very dark corner in Indonesian public. Again, I mean, I think that would bring... Maybe the, the other issues as well about, about religion. If we Absolute, think, yes. Absolutely. That's a perfect segue into your third really interesting point, which is about how Islam fits into this whole picture, which is prima facie, when I looked at it, I was a bit perplexed by it, given what Russia and its previous incarnation of the Soviet Union 
and has, has done over time to a lot of Muslim communities. I mean, who was chiefly responsible for arming up the regime in Syria to do what it's been doing to other Muslims? But you make some really interesting arguments, and perhaps you could reprise them here. Yes, so initially I, I also thought that because of the history in Af- the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan and Russia's war against Chechnya and then in Syria, even against Syria, then I think many Muslim groups in Indonesia staged a mass demonstration in front of the Russian embassy uh, several years ago. But then you can always see that after, I think after 2014, 15, and even 16, the Russian embassy in Indonesia and also this uh, Russia Beyond the Headlines, this institution are trying to portray Russia in a different light. So they are trying to portray that Russia is an ally of Islam. So they are trying to portray Ramzan Kadyrov, for example. We know who Ramzan Kadyrov is, how you know how dangerous he is, probably, to, and and how brutal his, his his regime. But the way that the Indonesian people view Ramzan Kadyrov, a, a devout Muslim, we don't know what he is actually doing uh, in his free time. But the way that they receive this message from this kind of Russian public diplomacy. Uh, arguing that Russia is a friend of Islam. There is this uh, large gathering, I think, during the, the celebration of Eid at the end of Ramadan several years ago in Moscow. There was this big viral pictures of people congregating in Moscow praying. And that was pictured by the this kind of Russia beyond the headlines, Russian embassy, trying to, again, to show that Russia is a friend of Islam. And then you can see at the moment, every time Russian people bring this Russian invasion, public will respond saying that, oh, but Russia is a, is a close friend of Islam. Forgetting that, like you said in the past, they have a troubled history in Chechnya, in Syria, in Afghanistan, and then you can trace it back to the Soviet Union. And, and you, can, you can always find this channel on YouTube uh, with millions of subscribers and millions of viewers uh, saying that Russia is an ally of Muslim at the end of days. That's, again, that's absurd. Uh, but but that's that's the fact that people are keep repeating this narrative, and you can see in WhatsApp groups, in family WhatsApp groups, people are sending this message that uh, Putin is a strong leader, he's a pro-Islamic leader. Even there is one, I think the 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 very last message I received from one of my friends saying that Kadyrov asked, uh, oh Putin asked Kadyrov to stop the fight, but Kadyrov said no. Ramadan is a good time to fight because then we have a double the spirit. It, it's not true. Again, it's fake because you cannot find any trace of that news in even in Russian media, but it's being spread in Indonesia by, by people in social media as well. So you can you can actually see the connection. Of course, it's not a strong, it's not a strong argument. Again, I, I put it in, in my article, but you can see that there is this Islamic version or perspective in, in, in seeing this conflict. And also, if you bring Again, the idea of Zelensky is being friendly with Israel and his Jewish background. Then it starts to, for for ordinary people, it starts to come to, uh, together. I'm interested in the linkage between the popular perceptions that you've identified and the Indonesian official position, which has been quite tepid with regard to the, the issues in, in Ukraine, the invasion in the first place. Just to say, of course that the president, for example, or the foreign minister haven't themselves expressed their concerns about peace, their desire for peace, their 
obviously horrified by what's going on. But the Indonesian position officially has not been a very strong one, to say the least. What is the correspondence between the popular mood that you're talking about and the official position? Or is there other explanations for why Indonesia's position is what it is? Yes, I, so I, I don't think that the, the official position actually depends on the public opinion. I think the official position is based on several, you know, pragmatic consideration. Again, you can always cite this kind of independent and free or active policy, but it's mostly a justification. And also, there are several pragmatic considerations, uh, investment and many other things. But I don't think that they actually listen to the public. But w- what I would say is that if we make a hypothetical situation where the public actually supports Ukraine, then it might push the government into thinking, okay, so maybe we should start at least changing our position. But at the moment, there is no way that the government will change position because the public is actually not supporting them to change. That's, I think, is the role of the public here. It's not directly influencing, but it is, it is mostly act as, as a justification for the president and for the minister. And then with this situation, they don't have any reasons to change. And, and you can see... The latest UN, I think, human rights deci- uh, decision to expel Russia for or suspend Russia's membership in UN Human Rights Commission. And then you can see that Indonesia again abstaining at this moment together with the other Southeast Asian countries. Right? Which, That's right. So, so you, can, you, can see that. you can see that as well. Now, Indonesia is by no means alone when it comes to the Southeast Asian countries. Only Myanmar, and I suspect that was the ambassador speaking, not the government, and the Philippines actually supported the resolution. Finally, how do you see the Ukraine crisis and the different responses of our governments to it affecting Australia-Indonesian relations? Australia's position is very pro-Ukraine and very Western in that sense. And specifically, how do you think Jokowi might react were Australia and other Western countries to boycott the G20 meeting in Bali this October if Putin were to attend? Yes, this is a very interesting last question, but I don't think that they will care that much about the other country's position in this stage. So even if Australia you know, uh, supports Ukraine, supports the sanction and boycotting the G20, I don't think that it, it will affect Indonesian perceptions toward Russia, uh, towards Australia, of course. Uh, also, uh, with other countries in the region, Singapore has been a very staunch supporter of Ukraine and sanction as well. And I think what, what will affect is it's more like uh, the general feelings or the perception of Indonesians towards Australians from the, from the very beginning. So I don't think Russia and Ukraine plays into that uh, situation. Uh, well, Radicho, that's been fascinating. And I think, it, again, it points out that uh, sometimes Australia and Indonesia see things very similarly and other times we don't. <laughs> and that's, I think, is eternally going to be our circumstances. But thanks again for a very much of the conversation. Thank you for inviting me, David. Now to a different aspect of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the information domain. Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Carl Miller about the effectiveness of Russia's disinformation operations, particularly outside of Western countries. They consider who is winning the information war. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about the information dimension of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And again, this comes as evidence of Russian war crimes keep spewing out of Bucha and Irpin, probably with worse to come. All the while, Russia is pursuing its false claims that uh, Ukraine was responsible for these atrocities all the way up to the UN. I think they're pushing for a, a meeting on it today. 
But taking us back to the first couple of weeks of, of the war, many commentators from the West and analysts noted the clumsiness and in some cases absence of Putin's information operations around the conflict. In contrast, Ukraine seemed to dominate the information space in, in all domains, really, uh, broadcast print and certainly social. Most recently, your team has done some analysis of Russian information operations on the war on Twitter, and you found that in uh, BRICS countries, in, in places like India, South Africa, Brazil, etc., China, the information picture looks really, really different, and you're arguing that we're missing a whole bunch of stuff here. That's right. Well, Anastasia, thanks so much for having me on. Hi there, everyone. Indeed. So, so I think over the first month, as you say, it's become very commonplace for everyone to suppose that that kind of Putin's kind of propaganda machine has kind of been kind of misstarting somehow. Lots of reasons put forwards for that, all the way from Zelensky's great kind of media genius, all the way through to kind of war planning secrecy and and the fact that the uh, that his kind of uh, information warfare teams didn't really know what they were being deployed to justify. But but our research didn't really suggest that any of that is is necessarily or entirely true at all. So so we were looking at an influence operation, I think, that, that happened over March 2nd and 3rd. Two pro-invasion hashtags trending across Twitter. Lots of researchers realising over those days and in the days thereafter that they were suspicious, that there was kind of what we call false amplification that were propelling them into the trending boxes across Twitter. And, and our, our own research really looking at the nature of the accounts that was, were, were doing that propelling. So accounts that kept firing tweet after tweet containing those two hashtags. And when you actually look at those accounts and you do various kinds of linguistic profiling and, 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 and other ways of trying to kind of characterize their behavior, you realize two very clear things. Firstly, very, very few of these accounts were claiming to be from the West. These were accounts which were using Hindi and Urdu and Sindhi and Farsi and, and lots of other languages and claiming to be from South Africa and, and India and Tamil language accounts and, and Malaysia and Indonesia. Second, the actual messages they were sending on those days were not addressing the West. They were about the West for sure. This was about Western hypocrisy, NATO expansionism, but they were addressing BRICS countries. They were talking about an anti-colonial solidarity. They were talking about BRICS solidarity. They were talking about Putin's role in, you know, national liberation movements in Africa in the 1980s. So all of this began to imply to us, really, that, you know, the, the fact that my timeline, perhaps all of your timelines, are wall-to-wall pro-Ukrainian sympathy doesn't necessarily mean that we're winning the information war. And in fact, it might be blinding us to where the information war is really happening. All it means, necessarily, is that we're not the back, battleground over which the information war is currently being fought. Has your research been able to link this activity to state-based, Russian state-based counts or efforts at all? No, and that, that's an extremely important caveat, is that this is all kind of data science and, and it, it's often the kind of lead-driven kind of world of OSINT that can, in, in the rare times that anyone can, actually directly and definitively link this back to the Russian state. So all we can say is these, these are pro-invasion um, influence operations. And, and even then, you know, definitively, you know, all we're able to propose is a series of overlapping suspicious patterns. And, and even then, to notice that, you know, this is very likely inauthentic activity wrapped in and around completely organic and authentic activity as well. So, so this is a world, a shadow world, of course, where there's very few definites and, and, and lots of maybes and probabilities. And, and in some ways kind of reflects kind of one of the underlying logics of, of this world of influence operations that it's so unbelievably easy to do and extremely difficult to detect, and even even more difficult to detect in any kind of definitive way. 
so, I mean, presents huge problems for researchers. But in terms of the kinds of accounts that you're looking at that seem inauthentic or the networks that you see, you're seeing that are inauthentic, what might be some of the, the methods that are being used, some, some of the digital methods, you know, ranging from bots, but all sorts of other things as well? Yeah, so so th- th- there are there are very suspicious patterns, I have to say. And d- despite those caveats, as someone that spent the last kind of ten years pulling these kinds of campaigns apart, this to me, to my eyes, there there was extremely obvious and and extremely suspicious activity happening. You've got accounts that basically just fire off retweets, it's frenetic amplification. It's nothing else. You've got accounts that, despite their disparity in linguistic and national identities, all start posting from these hashtags from nowhere, all on the same day and often actually even on the same hour. And you've got very sharp account creation spikes, both on the day of the invasion and the day of the UN vote. So so all of that does imply that there is coordination underlying this activity. My, my guess is that what's happening here is either one or a series of interlocking exploitations of paid to engage networks. These are freely retailed com- you know, um, services, really, uh, where companies ship you retweets or followers or replies, kind of framed as kind of digital marketing services. And you can, you know, you're one Google away from these services. They're not difficult to find. And now when we continue to follow the activities of these self-same networks, for instance, in the in the three Indian clusters which we found, pretty much every single account is currently talking about the Kashmir files, which is a, a very divisive Hindi language film that's just been released. So my guess is that they're commercial and they kind of swung behind the invasion, now swung behind other things. Um, and actually have very, very little, if if any, kind of enduring interest in the evasion whatsoever. So just a couple of things. Can we can we ever sort of tell or find out who's paying for this activity? And but your your underlying point is this is business as well and not necessarily just ideology. Right. And and you know, I, I think it reveals a kind of an often overlooked aspect of of information warfare, which is that it probably has much more to do with the kind of grubby, banal day-to-day world of spam than it does, you know, grand geopolitics and, you know, and, and the great game. And we often, we often don't really see that link very much. But, but it is exactly the fact that these kind of existing networks, you know, exist, which allow you to simply rent what you want. And, and of course, a whole other world behind that where you can buy social media accounts in the thousands on, on any social media platform that you want. You know, that, that, that's what facilitates this kind of activity. In terms of can we ever track down who is really behind this, that is investigative journalism. And there certainly are leads here. So we can see those networks. We can see what they're currently doing. Uh, we can see what they're currently amplifying. Them amplifying certain stories, politicians, uh, film releases, and so on, kind of is, is the lead where an investigative journalist should start digging in. Because what I suspect is often the case here is that you have these networks probably kind of separated by a series of kind of consultancies and, and kind of marketing and advertising companies from legitimate actors that might well have no idea what they're in fact paying for. So if mm. I'm releasing a film, I probably just want social media engagement, right? So I buy, mm. I pay a marketing company to get that for me. Well, they pay another more spammy marketing company to deal with certain kinds of that. And they might have a consultant which then engages with the, with the pay-to-engage network. So all of that together means that, you know, there's probably a chain of money. There's probably a chain of commissioning happening which we might well be able to follow, but we can't follow just simply using data science. So just to get into some of the, the narratives here that are being pushed, what do you think is, are the kind of key meta and sub-narratives behind perhaps the, the success of this kind of disinformation and propaganda that's being aimed at these audiences? Yeah, so it's important to say that the main function, again, of these 
largely spammy 10,000 core accounts pushing this hashtag towards inward amplification. So mm -hmm. a reasonably small number of pro-invasion memes being pumped out over those days, receiving very, very large numbers of likes and retweets from these accounts, one after the other. That was, that was the main function of the, of the network. The memes, I would say, kind of really divide into two different kinds. You've got memes which are kind of explicitly addressing kind of India and BRICS countries more largely, especially South Africa. So lots of kind of Indian and, and Russian flags crossed and, and one's redolent of Russia's kind of, you know, diplomatic support for India over the years, what Ukraine has done to undermine Indian aims over the years, anti-colonial motifs for sure. But then kind of tied in with that kind of pure internet kind of mimetics. So kind of Putin riding a bear. Um, and, uh, you know, I I India is John, Sm John Snow in Game of Thrones, like, you know, standing up to this kind of charging horde of, of US and UK and kind of Western diplomatic pressure, which I think kind of reveals another kind of important truth here, Anastasia, which is that, you know, even though we often use this kind of vocabulary of disinformation to kind of discuss these kinds of efforts, there aren't a tremendous number of truth claims really being contained in these in these memes at all. You know, there is no kind of actual truth or lie in Putin riding around on a bear. You know, this mm -hmm. is this is often actually not really about fact or falsehood at all. It's it's kind of acting on in the kind of world of kind of feeling and, and kind of, you know, and and slick TikTok kind of rock music videos and making Russia look cool and making Russia look powerful. You know, much more to do with identity and belonging and, and sense of place in the world, I think, than it than it does have to do with kind of overt kind of fake news or or propagating a lie. Also, looking at just the, the South African case really quickly, apparently Jacob Zuma's daughter was responsible for a lot of pro-Russian invasion tweeting. Is that is it authentic? And, and why would someone like that be tweeting about Russia? That's right. And, and the South African cluster is actually very different from the others, much less spammy, my, I judge, uh, much more organic. You know, the others are like 80% plus retweets. The South African cluster is 30%. So there's a lot more original material there, a lot more material that is difficult to spoof on mass as well. So more selfies in cafes, you know, and things like that. Yes, I think I think it's genuine kind of opinion formers and powerful voices online like Jacob Zuma's daughter, who who, who is in part kind of um, engaging with the hashtag there and pushing it. Quite why? I mean, I think, you know, I mean, as anyone's guess, to be honest with you, but it's clear that lots of people that are very sympathetic to Jacob Zuba and I think a kind of a series of anti-colonial claims which Zuma has made certainly kind of like sought to portray the invasion as a anti-colonial, anti-Western gesture necessarily committed in the face of ne like a very aggressive NATO expansionist um, provocation. That's how they chose to see it. And that's really what they took to the hashtag to kind of communicate and, and, and kind of argue for. So, I mean, finally, what are the stakes here? Why, why does this matter? And what can democracies do to counter this kind of disinformation? Should we, as some argue, be indulging this kind of disinformation kinds of networks and propaganda networks ourselves? Or do we already do that? Or what, what's what's the best strategy here, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the window I've just drawn for everyone is extremely small and imperfect. Twitter-only research, you know, which is kind of in, in a world where we know these influence campaigns are almost always multi-channel, multi-platform, you know, doesn't show us a tremendous amount. What I do think it perhaps suggests is that we are declaring 
kind of victory in the information war far too early. I think kind of what we're seeing is Zelensky's kind of great success in couching this conflict not as one between Russia and Ukraine, but one between Russia and the West. And of course, that has been extremely successful and mobilized a tremendous amount of both political and moral and, and kind of military support for Ukraine from the West. But what I do think that has also perhaps done is opened a series of opportunities for pro-invasion, pro-Russian influence operations elsewhere in the world that have much less support and much less kind of wellsprings of sympathy for NATO and for the West. Um, and however strange it, it can appear, to, certainly to my eyes, to kind of somehow couch what I see as an, essentially an imperial invasion, you know, in, in anti-colonial terms, that is what these arguments were beginning to do. So I think that perhaps is as far as we can take the kind of reasoning of this data is that is that outside of the West and outside of our own timelines, you know, information spaces across BRICS, perhaps elsewhere as well, perhaps across Asia and South Asia too, are much more contested than we think they are. And I've had lots of journalists kind of reach out to me and, and, and start talking to me in the in the wake of that research from Malaysia and India and, and Singapore and Indonesia, and all of which are seeing much more active information spaces, a much more joined conflict, as it were, than what we are seeing in the West. And I think we need to wake up to to the rest of the world that is in play, that hasn't sanctioned Russia, that actually might be much more sympathetic to this invasion and might be very important in any kind of longer running conflict here where sanctions and other forms of diplomatic and political kind of pressure on Russia become more and more and more important as the, as the war drags on. Now, what do we do about all of that is a great question. And, and, of, and of course, we have built in the West our own information warfare capabilities and military, just like Russia's, also redrew information at around the same time, around a decade ago now, to be a theatre of war, not just at all used within war. Very consequential redrawing and kind of reconceptualising of information, in my point of view. As a writer, I find it extremely distressing, <laughs> the idea that the only way of fighting information warfare is more information warfare. Because what essentially that does, I think, is drain information of any kind of intrinsic value. In information warfare, the point of information, any manoeuvre within information is ulterior to information. It's about behavioural attitude and effects. The only reason you do something is to get someone to change their mind or keep their mind or to do something or not do something. And as uh, cultures, I think, that do value information, actually, for something beyond that, as information itself having kind of impacts which actually sit entirely in and of itself as within journalism or, or music or, or, or literature. It's very worrying to see information warfare really denude it of any of that kind of intrinsic value. And I think we in the West have to stop ourselves joining information warfare, more information warfare, because because all we're doing here is is hastening the kind of militarization of things that shouldn't be militarized. So the responses have to be asymmetric. We have to look beyond the platforms. Facebook and Twitter removing accounts isn't enough. We need to put more technical pressure on the people doing this. We have to put more direct pressure on the servers that are being used to attack these platforms. And ultimately, I think we've got to clean up the world of spam. It's not okay that there are these companies out there selling retweets to anyone that would pay for them. Because mm -hmm. who's going to pay for them are going to be information warfare officers. You don't even have mm -hmm. to do the job themselves. It's not okay that this stuff is legal. And it's not okay that it's functioning freely in the open market. So the next step, I think, for us is turning to these spammy kind of pseudo marketing companies and seeing what we can do to make the way that they operate not viable really anymore. 
Look, I couldn't agree with you more as a geopolitical analyst. All the systems that we depend on for our security and economic prosperity and good governance really depend on trusted information. And I think you've made a really great case for why this is an extremely important security matter that we need to pay attention to and really why the rest of the world matters, not just the markets that we are familiar with. Carl, thank you so much for joining us and explaining your research and wish you luck with with your further research and hope to have you back sometime. Thanks very much, Anastasia. Thanks, everyone. Finally, Bart Hogaveen speaks to Tricia Ray about Australia and India's engagement with Southeast Asia and opportunities to support inclusive digital development in the region. Thanks, Tricia, for, uh, for joining us uh, today at, on the, on the ASPI podcast. Um, in the last couple of months, we've been working together, um, ASPI and uh, Observer Research Foundation, on a new report, Digital Southeast Asia, Opportunities for Australia and India to Support the Region in the Post-COVID Context. And I think we've tried to kind of define what is, um, what's the problem. And, and I think we came with a very compelling challenge that we posed to ourselves and it kind of poses to the region which is how can we stimulate further digital development while ensuring that future growth is inclusive? And I think that we really try to look at how the Australia-India partnership that is existing bilaterally, but also through the Quad, can help leverage opportunities to, um, to strengthen our engagement in Southeast Asia, both between India and Southeast Asia, between Southeast Asia and Australia, and bilaterally between Australia and India. Tricia, from your perspective and, and obviously from, from an Indian perspective, where do you see the value of this research and the report? Hmm. So both India and Australia have fairly common interests when it comes to ASEAN as a region. And the pandemic has certainly helped deepen some of those interests. So one, of course, is in terms of supporting digital connectivity in the region in a way that is inclusive and in a way where the region has choices about the partners they work with, the vendors they choose for their digitalization story, and so on. And then India and Australia have, of course, reached this unprecedented level of engagement in their own relationship and are looking for ways to engage productively. So in that sense, this report is at the convergence of these three or four factors. Yeah. And when you talk about digital connectivity issues and that issue of inclusivity, what are the things that that you know in the region where Australia, India, in partnership with Southeast Asian governments and maybe non-government partners can really make a contribution? What could be some of the specific examples? Certainly. We can start with some really basic issues, of course. We briefly discussed in the report about the the quality of internet connectivity in the region, rural connectivity briefly as well, in which India, of course, we mentioned the example of India's Bharatnet project. There's also issues of uh, cyber capacity building. So the capacities of the SARTs and other cybersecurity agencies in the region is pretty patchy, like some countries are, of course, pretty advanced, but others still need that support to build up their capacity. This coincides with the fact that the Asia-Pacific as a region has been growing in another sense, in the sense of the volume of cyber attacks being carried out in the region. So you have this growing threat, but the capacity has not quite matched up. So India and Australia could definitely then collaborate to help shore up, so to say, the defenses of the region. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what you definitely see reflected both in 
I would say many of the bilateral agreements that have been signed between Australia and Southeast Asian partners, but also between, I think, India and Southeast Asian partners, this, this kind of focus on the, the security and the cybersecurity element of it. Although I think in the report, we've really tried to balance that with kind of more the developmental angle. And I think you referred, obviously, to digital connectivity and affordability of connectivity. The other thing you mentioned was inclusivity. Could you explain, let's say, a little bit, what are the issues with inclusivity or the lack of inclusivity in digital transformation that is potentially impeding further kind of progress generally with with the nation's or an economy's digital transformation agenda? Certainly. So one of the bigger priority areas we really focused on in the report was on digital knowledge and future-proofing these skilling initiatives. And the issue that we saw while we were doing the groundwork for the report was that Of course, the pandemic had devastating effects on the workforce and businesses as they were suddenly forced to move online, but may not have always been prepared to do so. It was the fact that women-owned businesses and women workers were often worse hit than the general population during the pandemic. And so emphasis, of course, has to be placed on building back better in the sense of the skilling initiatives cannot be gender agnostic. There needs to be special attention paid, for example, to supporting female digital entrepreneurship and giving them access to online courses and so on. So that was also a key recommendation that we put across in the report. And did you see or do you notice kind of any of that being reflected in current engagement between for instance, Indian and Africa in the region or, or Australian or other, other international partners, investments and collaborations in the region? Certainly. So in India's case, there is an initiative called, I believe it's the Online Risk Awareness Campaign that India is funding in collaboration with, uh, I think, Cambodia. It's a pretty short project in the sense it's part of what India calls quick impact projects. And so that's something that India is currently working on in in a concrete way, in making online spaces safer for women and children, for example. Right. And and how does that compare, in your view, to some of the initiatives that, for instance, the Australian government is pursuing in the region? So I think as part of what we are calling the Partnership for Recovery the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade kind of launched this new package of support to ASEAN. And one of the four components was digital skilling and the transformation, which seems kind of less kind of focused on quick impact projects or shorter projects, but more kind of long-term and enduring, but also probably less tangible. Do you see there is some kind of opportunity for complementarity or where we can reinforce what India is pursuing and what the Australian approach to digital support in Southeast Asia is? Mm, uh, certainly. So it's not that short-term projects are better or worse than longer-term projects. They're complementary in a way. The shorter-term projects help deliver impact in a quick way, in a way that is accessible, in a way that then administrations can point to and say, this is progress that we have made in the last couple of years. Longer-term projects are, of course, great for continued engagement because staccato engagement is not the best way to build up 
uh, relationship between two sets of geographies. So there's certainly a lot of complementarity there, including, for example, in terms of the relationships and networks that India and Australia have built up through these initiatives. And that can certainly help as well. In India's case, it's also the fact that we are tackling many of the same challenges that we are engaging with Southeast Asia on. And so we have concrete learnings from our own digital connectivity projects, from our own digital inclusion projects that then we can take. We have this demonstrated expertise and then we can take to the region to help their efforts as well. I think that's that's really interesting that the expertise that India brings based on its real life experience with kind of the digital transformation and the digital development. And we've reflected that in one of the recommendations where we talk about public digital infrastructure. So what kind of regional or national infrastructure is kind of a public good where we talk about, for instance, India's tech, which is, I think, a really interesting example of where, where India is kind of leading, if not in the region globally, on providing digital tools, digital products as kind of open source for the region. And I think we've seen Singapore already taking up that offer and, and, and combining or exchanging software products around digital payments. Where do you think that's heading in, in the near future? Is there something that, that where kind of the Australia-India relationship, but maybe also the broader relationship between Australia, India and Southeast Asia can really tap into those existing resources? India's tech example in particular demonstrates the importance of a kind of public-private partnership because while it is government-led and it builds applications for e-governance, the body of experts are all from the industry, from the private sector. So it's a semi-private, semi-public effort. And yes, it has seen considerable success. A lot of India's e-payments apps are based on projects under India Stack. A lot of our apps that are built to create a more secure online experience are part of India Stack. And indeed, there has been interest in Southeast Asia to build on that example, to collaborate with, with India Stack and figure out how these countries themselves could build their own e-payments ecosystems, their own biometric IDs and so forth. And yes, again, absolutely, there is a scope for collaboration in the India-Australia context for this as well. Uh, so thanks, Trish. And just one question at the end of this uh, conversation. If based on, I mean, the experience of us working together, a think tank based in India, think tank based here in Canberra, Australia, what will be your single recommendation to Australia and the Australian kind of policy community in terms of how you think they should engage most constructively with India on this topic of digital Southeast Asia? Mm, that's that's a big question. So what we're already doing is, of course, really helpful. This kind of think tank to think tank collaboration, putting out recommendations so both our governments can take a look and get ideas for the work that they would like to pursue. But then also actively then socializing these recommendations within those policy making circles, not just among 
high-level political appointees, but also the bureaucrats who will be here for a long time and who will be able to carry that through uh, in terms of institutional memory. The other thing is there is no one single ministry or body in India that is in charge of digital connectivity. It's it's quite scattered. And so engagement can't just be limited to one or two ministers, or it, it has to be across several agencies, say cybersecurity agencies, the MEs, cyber diplomacy division, uh, Ministry of Electronics and IT. So there's there's more to be done in terms of building those bridges between all of these important agencies to ensure that cooperation isn't limited and narrow. Great. Thanks, Trisha. And I think that relates very clearly to the very first recommendation we make in the report and which is maybe also the most kind of boring and exciting one, which is really the need for what we said, an integrated government approach to international digital engagement, where it's not just the foreign affairs departments or the economic ministries or the trade ministries. It's really a whole of government effort on the side of Australia, on the side of India, but also on the side of most partners in, in Southeast Asia. Thanks, Fisher, for your time. Thanks for your insights. It's always really encouraging to learn from what's actually happening in India. And I think through this report, we've also learn more how India is tackling these these very issues that we are observing here as well and and that would inform the Australia-India partnership in regards to engagement in Southeast Asia on digital issues. Thanks, Fisher, for your time. Thanks, Bart. It was great being here as well. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Dr. David Angle, Head of ASPE's Indonesia Programme, and Raditya Dhammaputra, PhD researcher at the Johann Skite Institute of Political Studies at the University of Tartu and lecturer at the Department of International Relations of the Universitas Erlanga, Indonesia. Anastasia Kapetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist and Carl Miller, Research Director of the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. Bart Hogovine, Head of Cyber Capacity Building with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Trisha Ray, Associate Fellow with ORF's Centre for Security Strategy and Technology. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.